This is a Triple J podcast. Hey, Tim Shepard here for the Hack Podcast, filling in for Dave Marchese. Imagine this, you've been dealing with an illness and trying to find the right medication. After a long time visiting doctors and trying different things which haven't worked, you've finally found something that does. But taking that medication means that you might not be able to get behind the wheel of a car. In Australia, hundreds of thousands of people have been prescribed medicinal cannabis, but the strict laws around driving with cannabis, or the THC it contains, mean that some people are choosing not to use the prescriptions. A change could be on the way, though, at least in Victoria, where the government has announced a study that could see the laws changed to allow medicinal cannabis users to drive. We're also going to hear about how other major cities around the world are trying to keep renting affordable. Before that, though... Hack. Our thoughts are with them and their families back in the United States and want to reassure them that we'll give them that care. On Triple J. Yeah, you may have seen this really tragic story out of the Northern Territory that took place during a military training exercise. An American aircraft crashed and at least three US Marines have died. The crash took place on Melville Island, which is part of the Tiwi Islands, and a huge rescue effort was required to get all 23 people on board the aircraft back to hospitals in Darwin. The incidents raised all kinds of questions about the aircraft involved, the safety of these operations, even if Darwin can cope with major emergencies like this. Our Northern Territory reporter, Miles Holbrook-Walk, spoke to someone who was on Melville Island when the aircraft went down. That fuzzy exchange over radio traffic control might be hard to understand. It's describing the moment a helicopter carrying 23 American soldiers went down and crashed over Melville Island, a remote community about 70 kilometres north of Darwin. One official then asks the other if there is a fire on the ground at the crash site. The other official says yes, there is. Shane Murphy lives on the Tiwi Islands, on Melville Island in fact, where the crash happened. It was like a big mushroom of black smoke. He was fishing on the island's south coast when he saw black smoke rising. Immediately Shane knew this wasn't smoke from a bushfire, something big had just happened. We had a look real hard and we can see helicopters flying around the, where the black smoke was, so I knew something going down. But he didn't know just how big this tragedy would be. A real tragedy for the US military halfway around the world. Three Marines have died. At least 18 others are injured, including five in serious condition. There's been an outpouring of grief across the country and over in the United States. The Prime Minister has even shared his condolences. Uh, obviously, this is uh, a, 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 a regrettable incident and the Australian Defence Force are cooperating with our friends in the United States Defence Force. This is a very tragic event. Obviously, we've been reminded uh, ourselves of the, the risks involved in, in defence exercises and the, the, the costs that defence personnel pay, and, uh, and we are very much standing with the United States. From my perspective, it's enormously heartbreaking what took place yesterday, but I'm enormously proud of the response that the Northern Territory provided. 
While the investigation into the crash is still in its early stages, what we do know is that it took place during an Australian-led joint training mission involving other countries, but only Americans were hurt, no Australians were injured, and the training will continue later this week. The Northern Territory Chief Minister, Natasha Files says these training exercises with US Marines are really important and she wants them to continue. Working with both Australian Defence and our allies around ensuring that we are prepared um, to support these exercises. They, they mean a lot to the Northern Territory community. Attention's being turned to how the crash happened because it's not the first time this type of aircraft, the V-22 Osprey, has gone down. In June last year, a crash involved the same type of aircraft killed five Marines in Glamis, California. Cedric Layton is a retired U.S. Air Force colonel and says the Osprey aircraft has a checkered safety record and that Australia and the U.S. will be keeping a close eye on the findings from the investigation. Last year, we had a crash in Norway involving Marines as well. Four Marines were killed during a NATO exercise in Norway. Before this crash, about 51 people have died in Osprey-related accidents since the aircraft was first introduced in the late 1980s as a prototype. Hack on Triple J. Miles Holbrook walk with that story. So how important are training exercises like the one taking place in the Northern Territory and how safe are they? Let's find out more. John Blacksland is a professor of international security and intelligence studies at ANU. John, thank you for coming on Hack. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me on the program. This crash occurred during a big training exercise called Exercise Predators Run. It involves troops from Australia, the United States, Philippines, as well as Indonesia. Do we know what this exercise was trying to achieve? So they usually have a number of objectives, um, but one of the top ones for this particular exercise was uh, for collaboration, so building confidence and trust and uh, compatibility between forces. Um, But I understand they're doing a lot of kind of ship-to-shore manoeuvre-type movements that uh, involve troops going from ships to an island and, you know, doing kind of scenarios that might be something that you could see conceive of in a hostile circumstances where you might need to deploy forces to capture an island or recapture an island or something like that. Interestingly, though, with this, um, with the Osprey helicopter, it's kind of a hybrid. It's a helicopter, but it's also a plane. And it's got amazing technology, which was really troubled in the early days, in the early 2000s, when they were first introducing it into service. Quite a few of them crashed. And then it had a pretty good run for the better part of two decades, but there have been a few accidents in the last few years that have suggested that maybe there's there's another problem emerging. Uh, But we'll have to wait and see as to what the air air safety investigators um, discover when they examine, you know, the remnants. And while that's happening, what will likely happen to this exercise following this crash? Will it continue, do you think, or will it have to be reassessed? So there'll be an operational pause, probably a day or so, maybe longer, depending on um, what other scenarios were envisaged to be undertaken and how much they were relying on the Osprey uh, tilt rotor aircraft slash helicopter to do the job. Um, Because if they were reliant on that, they're probably all grounded for now. And they would ground them because we don't know yet whether it was 
a human error, whether it was a software problem or a hardware problem or a maintenance problem. So you have to go through and work uh, scenario by scenario and work back having, you know, retrieved the black box and figured out all of the avionics and what's been going on, what went wrong. Uh, And that will then tell you, okay, there was a procedural problem or there was a mechanical problem. But some of those are, might be just unique to that particular aircraft, or they may be something that applies right across the board to the whole fleet. I'm speaking with John Blackslin, the Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies at ANU. Just weeks ago, four Australian soldiers died after an army helicopter crashed during exercise Talisman Sabre. And then earlier yep. this year, 10 Australian soldiers had to be rescued after their helicopter crashed into water near Jervis Bay in New South Wales during a different exercise. Are we seeing more accidents during training situations? So they're, they're quite separate matters. The MRH-90 helicopter, which are the two, was the helicopter involved in the two Australian incidents, has been plagued with problems and it's being replaced with Black Hawk helicopters because it's been plagued with problems. It's been very hard and expensive to maintain. It's had an operability rate that's been very low and it has uh, generated so many, uh, you know, related problems. So we're now getting the new Black Hawk helicopters in to replace the MRH-90s. It's a slightly different case here with this um, Osprey. Uh, because it's not maintained by Australia. It's not a European helicopter. It's an American helicopter. It's had a pretty good, in fact, very impressive track record. So exactly how this transpired, we don't know. As I said, there's a, so many aspects that have got to consider, software, hardware, um, you know, human factors, weather factors, uh, mechanical you know, procedural factors prior to the flight. Was Was there anything on board that shouldn't have been on board? So many factors have to be kind of considered and then one by one discounted until you get to the root cause of the problem and then you make the call about what to do next. So you seem to be saying that it's more of an issue of uh, the machinery that they're using and not the fact that they're in these large exercises where things could go wrong. No, well, see, the thing is with the Australian ones, it's a bit different there because we know that these are a little bit faulty, but we have been conducting really challenging activities to exercise our troops uh, notwithstanding, because for the Defence Force to, particularly our Special Forces, to be as honed as we require them to be, they have to do some very realistic training in some very challenging circumstances. And that puts the machines that uh, they're operating on at the limits of their capacity. So that, that means you've got very, very small margins for error. Not like if you're flying you know, at a safe speed, at a safe height, but as I say, we don't know yet which of all of those potential factors was the key one here. Was it human error? Was it pushing the envelope a bit too far? Did they breach safety protocols? Um, or was it just a software glitch or a something? did something just snap? You know, was it some mechanical failure? And that's the key thing. we just got to wait and find out. And you mentioned that, you know, it could be pushing the envelope and they have to do it themselves into some pretty dangerous situations as part of this training, which obviously comes with a risk to the troops involved, but I guess yeah. potentially also civilians who, you know, we're talking about uh, the Whit Sundays was the one during exercise talisman sabre and this one was um, in the Tiwi. Um, yeah. Some people may be asking whether these exercises are worth it or whether the benefits outweigh the risks here if they're taking place in, in our backyard. So all of these activities go through dramatic, detailed risk assessments. So their flight paths are considered in some detail 
and they you know the risk to life is a major consideration in all of these all of the planning uh, activities like this so uh, yes they obviously subject to review but the question is you know this is what that we've you know we've been asking asking about defense force for years to be the best you can be uh, and to be the best you can be you've got to take risks calculated risks measured risks um, and hopefully ones that don't push you over the line but sometimes that happens. And unfortunately, we've had a series of them in quick succession this year, which does give you the impression that something's amiss. Um, uh, I, I, there's clearly something amiss with the MRH90, and that's being rectified. As to whether there's something amiss with the Osprey, we just now have to wait and see it a little bit and see what the investigators come up with. All right, Professor John Blackson, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show. That was Professor John Blacksland, an expert in international security and intelligence studies at ANU. We've got some text coming through. Marty says, service in the military is inherently dangerous. They risk their lives to serve the community every day. This is why all service personnel should be respected. It's a really tragic story and hopefully there'll be some answers coming out of it. Time to move on though. There is absolutely no reason why doctors should not be able to advise their medicinal cannabis patients when it is safe to drive and when it is not. On Triple J. In the last few years, there's been a massive increase in the number of Aussies who are using medicinal cannabis. Since 2020, more than 300,000 prescriptions have been issued. But even though it's helping so many people, it's also putting a lot of them at risk. That's because if you're found driving a car or another vehicle with THC in your system, then you're going to get in a lot of trouble. You could go to court, lose your licence, pay a pretty big fine, even if your doctor has prescribed it to you. And that means that some people are choosing to not use their prescription so that they can keep driving. Are you one of these people? I'd love to hear from you. Text in on 0439 or call in on 1300 Well, now the Victorian government is actually launching a study that will look at how medicinal cannabis impacts people's ability to drive. It's going to take at least a year and a half to get the results, though. But do we need to wait that long before changing the rules? Dr. Maddie Moore is a doctor in Western Australia who prescribes medicinal cannabis. He knows a lot about this issue and he's with me now. Maddie, thanks for coming on Hack. My pleasure, Tim. It's uh, great to be here with you, buddy. Medicinal cannabis is accessible in most parts of Australia now. So how common is it for someone to have a prescription? Yeah, it's it's more and more common these days for sure. Um, you know, I don't know the exact statistics, but you know, the the SASB approvals and authorized prescriber approvals are um, you know, increasing by the month. Um, we're we're at oh, probably around 300,000 SASB protocol um approvals and uh gosh, we're not sure exactly how many authorized prescriber uh patients there are, but um at least you know, half of that, maybe more. It's hard to keep those statistics, but there are a lot more medicinal cannabis patients um, each month. How does medicinal cannabis impact someone who is taking it? You know, are they are they feeling like a high a sensation of being high or does it depend on what you're taking? 
Well, Tim, it just depends on whether or not the patient's prescribed uh, THC. Well, both both CBD and THC are psychoactive, but THC is the compound in cannabis that impairs drivers. And that's what's on, um, you know, certainly in the media, uh, what we're talking about. So it just depends on whether the prescriber offers THC, which can be very helpful, but it's the part of the plant that we're certainly cautious of impairments. And if someone has taken THC, is it concerning that they may get behind the wheel of a car? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we want our patients safe. We want them safe for themselves and others. So there is a period of time where THC can impair that patient, and we certainly need to make sure that they're safe. And so what are the rules then around driving if you are prescribed medicinal cannabis and you're taking it? Are you allowed to drive? Uh, look, we don't recommend driving with THC for a certain amount of time, and that, that's because it can impair. It's proven to impair, and we want our patients safe. So uh, we, we offer mostly THC products after hours and on the weekends with uh, discussion of risk, uh, certainly in patients that are prescribed it for the daytime. But we don't recommend our patients drive with THC um, in a certain amount of time of intake. Right. Well, that's the interesting part, though, I guess, in the debate that's playing out is whether it's a certain amount of time that the impairment from the THC has worn off or Hmm. whether it should be whether it's just simply that THC is in your system because you can have THC in your system but not be impaired. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Presence doesn't equal impairment. And there's a, that's the disconnect there. We're trying to get these drug driving uh, law reforms in place so that uh, it's actually fair because patients can take a THC dosage, um, for instance, overnight for insomnia within five to seven hours of uh, inhaled cannabis medicine uh, that can be out of the system, not actually out of the system, but not impairing. And with orally ingested THC products, that is a little bit longer, but certainly enough time will take place between ingestion and when a patient goes to work the next day. So I think for, for orally ingested products, yeah, it's safe to say 10 to 12 hours after ingestion and with uh, inhalation products, it's five to seven. And when it comes to the difference between uh, detecting impairment versus uh, simply having something in your system, is there any technology available to make that determination similar to how it is with alcohol? There isn't any right now, no. So we recommend swab uh, for impairments and you know, urine and, and blood screens for those levels of THC. We have yet to really see which level of THC, like alcohol, is above or below. Those studies are, are, are ongoing. I'm speaking with Dr. Maddie Moore, a GP in WA, who prescribes medicinal cannabis to people, and you're listening to Hack. I guess you mentioned this before, but when you're giving someone a prescription for medicinal cannabis, which may have THC in it, what advice do you give them when it comes well, to driving? Them, yeah, sure. We, we, we definitely tell our patients that they need to wait a certain amount of time before they get behind the wheel. We don't recommend that they use it while they drive. So we, we have a long discussion about side effects, about medicines that they've taken previously because they can't access medicinal cannabis without trying first-line therapies, failing or having side effects with those. And we, we don't guarantee that it'll work. I mean, it's, it's not snake oil. It is a medicine, an alternative medicine that may help. But um, like I said, we just have to trial it first, be really careful and make sure that our patients are safe in, in taking their medicinal cannabis. Are you finding that the current laws around driving with medicinal cannabis in your system is making some of your patients choose between 
using the, the medicine or still being able to drive to work or drive to uni or anywhere else? No, absolutely. It is, it is a, a real a point of contention for patients and, you know, they may actually benefit most from the impairing part of cannabis, but uh, most of the time will choose not to use it because of impairments on the road. Does that mean that they have to then take a different kind of medicine? You mentioned that medicinal cannabis is sometimes the last option that they try. So if they then can't do that because of not being able to drive, what options does it leave them? Yeah, look, there's not many options. I mean, that leaves them pretty discouraged because like you said, they come to us really as a last ditch effort. You know, there's lots of different ratios of cannabis medicines that we can offer, you know, going from, you know, CBD majority medicines all the way up to THC majority medicines. But those, we have to limit those for patients that are working with heavy machinery and operating uh, vehicles. Do you still think there's some kind of stigma around the use of medicinal cannabis when it comes to laws around driving. There are other drugs uh, available that do impair people, maybe not in the same way, but, you know, roadside drug tests are not looking for those. The stigmatization, Tim, is great for cannabis. I mean, it's hard to overcome that. You know, you've got uh, these other medicines that can be of a higher risk, um, more toxic, more dependent, um, but yet cannabis still has the bad name and, and we have to really um, change that for patients. The Victorian government's now announced a study that will investigate the impact of drivers who are taking medicinal cannabis, but it's going to take at least 18 months and won't begin until next year. Do you think that they're on the right approach in going down this path of studying and seeing what happens? Look, I think, I think it's always great to have research that backs the safety and efficacy of, of cannabis. But we, we actually have a lot of this research already. And these studies have been done by the University of Sydney, the Lambert Initiative, which is a, a body that investigates cannabinoid medicines. And back in 2020, 2021, and 2022, there were multiple studies done, small sample sizes that actually did the exact thing that the government's trying to do. So, you know, I think it's a little bit of a stalling tactic, to be quite honest. I'm, I'm not sure why they have to reinvent the wheel here when we already have the information. But you know, that's government for you. All right, Maddie, thank you so much for coming on Hack this afternoon. No sweat, Tim. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Maddie Moore, a GP from Western Australia who specialises in medicinal cannabis. And so many texts are coming through on this one. We've got one that says, I have been on medical cannabis for nearly three years and my life is so much better for it. But the daily risk of driving is always there, even though I'm not affected. I just don't get it. Well, we've got Elizabeth on the line. What's your story, Elizabeth? Hey, Tim. How are you going? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, yeah, not too bad. Um, yeah, look, I've had many years, well, my, my life really, uh, with many old immune diseases, the major one being, uh, which still has a lot of uh, stigma and research around it, fibromyalgia, um, which has been a big build-up to now being uh, THC, being the, um, the, <laughs> the, the medicine that helps a lot every day with my life otherwise i'm in uh, like astronomical pain um and i can't take it because i have to drive um and that i run the risk of getting pulled over drug tested right so do. you've you've just had to completely stop taking that that medicine whatsoever yes because even though they suggest the 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 time frames Taking it within those time frames and every day, it, it produces even a higher risk because if you're taking it long term, it stays in your body longer, even yeah. within those time frames. Um, so I can't take it. Um, 
yeah. So I yeah. think even so, uh, even roadside drug tests, like I used to be prescribed in Valium and stuff like that, but they don't test for that and that affects me even more. Yeah, well, um, it's it's a massive issue. Thanks for calling in, Elizabeth. And we've also got another text that says it goes much further than driving. I have a pres- prescription and can't touch it without losing my job. So plenty of other issues there as well. Hack. We have gotten used to a poorly run renting system. We haven't been able to build houses quickly enough. On Triple J. Yeah, if you're a renter in Australia, then you know how painful it is at the moment. If you haven't already had your rent go up, then it's probably going to go up soon. And if you're trying to find a place, then you could be stuck in huge lines competing with lots of other people. Everyone from the experts to the pollies have been arguing over how best to fix the problem of unaffordable rent. Some reckon we should freeze or limit rent prices. Others say it's a supply issue. that We just need more houses and apartments to be built. But we're not the only country dealing with this problem. And a bunch of ABC reporters in cities around the world, including London, New York City, Tokyo, have been taking a look at how bad it is in those places and what solutions are available. Well, Casey Briggs is the ABC's data analyst and has helped crunch the numbers on how some of those ideas are working out. He's with me now. Casey, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Hey, Tim. It's a pleasure. Hey, it is. Can you start by uh, telling us how we got to where we are in Australia with rent prices so high and so much competition for rentals? Yeah, the numbers I'm about to say will probably not surprise many people listening, but let's just start with how unaffordable things have got. In the last two and a half years, rent values, as estimated by CourtLogic, have increased more than we've seen in the previous 13 years. Uh, Most renters are now paying more than 30% of their income on rent. Poorer households, low-income households, they're looking at more like half of their income on rent. And if you look at the sort of chart of of rent values over time, there's this turning point. And that turning point is about the last quarter of 2020. There are all sorts of factors that that affect uh, the, the market and affect the prices of rental properties, but we saw a change in 2020 and it probably won't surprise you to learn the pandemic had a lot to do with that. Uh, Lots of factors, but just three big changes. One, we changed the way we live. Lots of people uh, uh, living in share houses looked at their, their living situation and thought, I don't want to do this in the middle of a pandemic and either moved into places on their own. They moved, you know, back with parents. Um, They had a bit more money to do so as well because of the way our lifestyles changed all of a sudden. And so household sizes shrank and that increased demand for rental properties by, or demand for households overall by about 120,000, according to the Reserve Bank. Later on, migration obviously slowed to a trickle during the pandemic, but surged afterwards. That's really put much more strain on the rental market as well. And the third factor, well, we're probably just not building enough homes at the moment either. There's this shortfall in in affordable housing, shortfall in housing overall, and most of the shortfall forecast over the next decade is in apartments, medium, high-density places that are likely to be rentals. Right. And Australia is not the only place dealing with this, right? Because you've had uh, been working with reporters who have been in New York City and in Tokyo, looking at how the, the situation has been dealt with there. I want to start with New York first, because they're doing something, or they have been doing it for a while, I believe, called rent controlled uh, buildings or apartments, which is similar to what some politicians say we should be doing here, where we limit the amount of rent can increase. Um, what did they find about that approach? Yeah, rent controls, um, the apartment from Friends was rent controlled. So oh. it's a common thing in, in 
America and New York. Um, there are lots of different models for rent controls. A common one is uh, called rent stabilisation. Often these involve lotteries as well. In New York City, if you want one of these rent stabilised apartments, you enter a lottery. Uh, 400 people apply for each of those rent stabilised ones. So your odds are not mm. great of getting one. But if you do get one, um, you're going to get caps on how much your rent can go up every uh, year. It makes, uh, you know, equivalent apartments in the same building significantly cheaper thanks to, in part, some city financing uh, of that. And it helps people who probably wouldn't be able to live in Manhattan live in Manhattan. Right. And then the other place that was of interest to me was Tokyo, which is, uh, they've gone with the idea of increasing housing supply, which is what a lot of state and federal governments seem to be pushing here in Australia. Um, How did that work? And what did you find about Tokyo? Yeah, I think all of these solutions that our team have looked at across the world could be useful in different ways, but supply is undoubtedly a really big part of our puzzle here. Tokyo, Japan more broadly, doesn't really have the same uh, undersupply of housing. In fact, if anything, they've got an oversupply of housing in Tokyo. Again, lots of reasons why. One of the big ones, though, is zoning and the the rules by which uh, apartments and buildings can be built. Um, We have all sorts of zoning planning regulations in Australia that differ from council to council. Uh, We're very precious about heritage you know, for many good reasons, but it does definitely limit where we can build new things. And it means there's a very heated, you know, debate around uh, development in Australia. That debate does not exist anywhere near the same level in Tokyo. In fact, you can pretty much build a house anywhere, whether it's commercially zoned, uh, residentially mixed zoned, all of that kind of thing. And what that's meant, uh, that coupled with Tokyo's fantastic transit system, uh, is that there is just a lot more around. The other thing, of course, is people in Japan are much more prepared to live in much smaller places than we are in Australia, so that helps as well. <laughs> you can build for cheaper uh, because you might be living in a place that's 30 square metres rather than, you know, in Australia where you're looking at 50, 60, 70 square metres in an apartment. Right. Well, that's definitely a lot for uh, our politicians and our experts to take on board and to consider. That was Casey Briggs, the ABC's data analyst and reporter, talking about rent prices around the world and how different cities are trying to tackle them. And that's all we got time for on the Hack podcast today. I'll catch you tomorrow. Hack on Triple Jack.